The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Tonight, uh, we are continuing our summer Bible study uh, on the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, 22 and 23. So please turn there now, Galatians chapter 5. And we'll, be, we'll uh, begin reading in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the f- Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for your word. Your word is truth, and your word is life, and I just pray now that you would give to each and every one of us ears to hear and eyes to see what your spirit is saying to your church through your word. May we glean all that you would have us to know, and by bearing much fruit, may we bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Now, having already considered love and joy, tonight we will be looking at peace. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. Now, peace in the New Testament means several things. There is, first of all, peace with God. We read in Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is peace... Uh, in the sense of the absence or the cessation of conflict or hostility or enmity, man in his natural, fallen, sinful state is not at peace with God. Rather, he is at enmity with God. Man in his natural, fallen, sinful state, apart from Christ and apart from his grace, is the enemy of God. And if God did not act on man's behalf by sending his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world to make atonement, for sin, to pay the penalty for sin through his death on the cross, we all would still be the enemy of God and subject to his just wrath, just wrath in hell for all eternity. But those who have, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, turned from sin to trust and serve the living God, their sins have been forgiven, and they have been declared righteous in the sight of God. 
And this is what the Bible calls justification. And through justification, man's war with God has ended, and God has made peace with his enemy, his enemy man. God, through the death of his son, has reconciled sinful man to his own holy self, making peace. Now, that is one aspect of peace, peace with God. And from that, of course, we experience an inner calm resulting from confidence in our saving relationship with Christ. And then there is the peace of God, the peace of God. This is typically what we think of as peace of mind. It is a sense of well-being derived not from favorable circumstances, but from the certainty that every step we take is ordered by God, by God who loves and cares for us and is working for our good and his glory. And while these two aspects of peace are connected, with one proceeding from the other, there can be no peace of God if there is no peace with God through Jesus Christ. The peace primarily in view here in Galatians 5 is the peace of God, the peace of God. That inward tranquility of heart and mind granted by God, it involves a confident trust in his perfect wisdom and infinite power that provides calm amidst the storms of life. In other words, church, the peace of God we experience as we walk in the Spirit and abide in Christ is firmly rooted in our understanding of and embracing of the sovereignty of God. In fact, of all the fruit of the Spirit listed here in Galatians 5, none is more dependent upon our view of God and his sovereignty than peace. And I'll talk a little bit about that further in in a few moments. But first, let me reiterate something that has been emphasized throughout our series so far. And that is, we are not commanded here in these verses, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, to produce any of this fruit on our own. We need to understand that. The listed fruit of the Spirit here is offered in sharp contrast to the works of the flesh listed in verses 19 through 21. The works of the flesh owe their origin and gain their energy from the flesh, man's fallen sinfulness. The fruit of the Spirit is the product of a power that is alien to us. The works of the flesh are the product of our activity, our own activity and our fallen nature. The fruit of the Spirit comes from our renewed nature in union with Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it is as we walk by the Spirit, in dependence upon his power and in obedience to his word, that his fruit is produced in our lives. That's what walking by the Spirit means. We recognize our dependence upon his power, and we obey the word that he has inspired. That's what walking by the Spirit means. It is that simple. Walking by the Spirit has nothing to do with mystical experiences, or weird manifestations. It's not about speaking in tongues or, or, or uh, being led by impressions or hearing the audible voice of God. Walking by the Spirit is about walking in obedience to his word in dependence upon his power. And when you do that, he will produce his fruit in your life. So when you find yourself struggling with a particular area of fruitlessness, Don't let your first thought be, oh, I have to try harder. I I need to produce more love. I need to to produce more joy. Let me see, how can I produce peace in my life? 
The answer is you can't. But God can and does when we walk by his spirit. Now, that's not to say, please hear this, that's not to say that we lapse into complete inactivity, that it becomes a, you know, let go and let God type of sanctification. Walking by his spirit, walking implies activity. We are commanded by Paul in Philippians chapter 2 to work out our salvation. In Colossians 1, verse 29, Paul writes, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, God's energy, that he powerfully works within me. There's a great deal of effort in the believer's pursuit of sanctification. God's spirit and grace work in us mightily as we pursue Christ's likeness. But that effort on our part is not directed toward producing fruit. It is directed at loving and obeying God, and then the fruit will come. So those who belong to Christ no longer live for themselves according to the flesh, but walk according to the power of the Spirit. And in time, the Spirit's work in a Christian's life produces fruit, fruit that is contrary to the works of the sinful nature. Now, concerning peace, what, what is it that helps us to produce? Well, well we don't, but what is it that leads to the development of the fruit of peace in our lives? Is there an area of spiritual activity that is directly connected to the believer's experiencing of peace in his or her life? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes. Please turn to Philippians chapter 4. Book of Philippians chapter 4. And this is where we are going to focus tonight, as we look at what Paul has to say about anxiety, prayer, and peace. Anxiety, prayer, and peace. Let's read verses 4 through 7. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Does he really mean that? Surely he means we can be anxious sometimes, right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord, always, Paul says. And to that many say, are you kidding? Are you kidding? Is Paul kidding? Does he have any idea what he's, what he's saying? Is he so out of touch with the harsh realities of life that he can be this flippant and happy-go-lucky? Rejoice in the Lord, I just lost my job. My, my mother died last week. My, my children won't even talk to me. The car won't start, and I don't have enough money to get it fixed. I'm supposed to see the doctor next week, but I'm too scared of what he'll say. Rejoice in the Lord. How am I supposed to rejoice in the Lord with all of the heartache and sorrow around? Now, I understand this reaction. 
And before you dismiss Paul as some sort of first century Pollyanna, remember this. He wrote those words while in prison. He wrote those words not knowing if he might be beheaded for nothing more than declaring his allegiance to Jesus Christ. The man who wrote those words knew more about suffering and deprivation than all of us combined. So if you still want to dismiss his counsel as unhelpful, go ahead. But don't do so on the assumption that he was naive or unacquainted with grief or was insulated from the kind of pain and heartache that, that some of you are facing right now. Is it not obvious that Paul is calling us to an experience that is unrelated to our eternal circumstances and in some ways even transcends our eternal, in, in, uh, external circumstances? You know, that, that great philosopher, Charlie Brown, once said, happiness is a warm puppy. <laughs> Maybe so. But what if that puppy runs away? What happens when the puppy dies, right? No, the kind of happiness that Paul has in view, the joy and delight that he calls for in this passage is not tied to a warm puppy or money in the bank or a clean bill of health or peaceful family relationships. It's tied to Jesus Christ, amen? It's tied to Jesus Christ. So let's begin there with Jesus Christ. After all, it is there in him, in relation to our Lord, in in the context of, of all we know that he has so graciously done for us, that we are to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Joy is to be expressed in all of our circumstances. And what concerns Paul and must concern us is the ground or reason of our joy. There is a sense in which Paul is declaring Jesus is our joy. And he is ours and we are his regardless of whether the sky is clear and sunny or threatens us with the you know, approaching funnel cloud of a tornado. And that is why we can rejoice always at all times in every circumstance, no matter pain or pleasure. Our joy is constant, not because our circumstances are, but because Jesus is. And this is the first of three exhortations in this passage. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And that's all I'll say about joy tonight. Caleb covered that last week. But, but know this, there is a connection between joy and peace They are not entirely unrelated. The second exhortation comes in verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That word reasonableness, it's hard to interpret. Uh, The King James Version translates it as let your moderation be known to all. But this is not really a call for temperance or abstinence. Others suggest the idea of generosity or the willingness to make allowances. The quality that, that keeps one from always insisting on one's rights. It's really the opposite of entitlement, the opposite of always demanding one's one's due. It is the patient willingness to yield wherever yielding does not compromise moral principle. And this is an aspect of peace that we don't often think about. A Christian producing the fruit of peace will also be reasonable in this way. The Christian battling anxiety, however, will most often be unreasonable unwilling to yield and demanding his own way. And then the third of Paul's exhortations is a familiar one and the one we need to focus on tonight. We read of it in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There are two experiential realities in which a Christian might live. Anxiety or peace. Anxiety 
or peace, worry or rest. And here Paul contrasts these two and tells us that the way to move from one into the other is by prayer. It's by prayer. And clearly Paul is drawing on the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in in, in Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. Uh, Also, interestingly enough, the word translated anxious is the same as what we find in Philippians 2, verse 20, uh, where it had the positive and even virtuous sense of being sincerely concerned for the welfare of another person. Philippians 2, 20. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned or anxious for your welfare. So what is the difference between sinful anxiety and sincere spiritual concern for someone else or for some circumstance in life? Well, here in Philippians 4, verse 6, unlike chapter 2, verse 20, Paul is speaking of godless concern for things over which we have no control, or even for things over which we do have control but should still entrust to the Lord. This sort of gnawing, corrosive worry is actually a form of of unconscious blasphemy because it calls into question the goodness and the wisdom of God. And Paul is not speaking of imaginary or phantom anxieties here. He's not making light of the troubles they face. He is simply convinced that God is able and willing to help. And more than that, and this goes back to what I said before about the sovereignty of God, that God is in control. Amen? That God is in control. But Paul does not, you know, simplistically or merely command them to stop worrying without offering an alternative cure. But the cure that Paul suggests is not what many have come to expect. It's not inaction or passivity. It is not apathy. Paul does not tell us to ignore or deny the problem. It is not withdrawal. In moments of anxiety, the easiest thing to do is to retreat into a corner of safety and complain, right, and grow bitter. Paul says the alternative to anxiety or worry is the pouring out of one's heart to God in prayer. Release from anxiety comes through laying yourself bare before God. As D.A. Carson has said, the way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. The way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. But how does this work? What is it about anxiety and prayer that that put them in conflict with each other? More specifically, what is it about prayer that makes it an effective antidote to anxiety? Well, here's a couple of, of reasons. First of all, anxiety is rooted in self, while prayer is rooted in God. Anxiety is the fruit of a narrow, constricted view of life. The only thing one can see is the problems or perplexities surrounding us. Prayer is the fruit of a broad and expansive view of life in which God is so big that everything else, even our worst problems and worries, shrink into insignificance. Anxiety is horizontal in focus. Prayer, on the other hand, is vertical in focus. That is to say, when you worry, you are consumed with looking to the left and the right, forward and backward. When you pray, you can't help but look up. Anxiety never raises your eyes above your problems, your situation, and circumstances. Prayer raises your eyes above and beyond yourself to God and his power. Anxiety looks to self to solve problems. Prayer looks to God to endure problems. When you are anxious, your circumstances and problems control you. 
They have sovereignty over you. You invest in them a power and an authority to shape your life. When you are prayerful, your circumstances shrink and are devoid of any such power to shape your life. Anxiety is a concern over circumstances you can't control. Prayer is confidence in the God who controls your circumstances. Anxiety is an expression of fear. Prayer is an expression of faith. And all of that, quite simply, is why the antidote to anxiety is prayer. There are two elements in Paul's theology of prayer as it relates to the peace of God. First are the characteristics of prayer. And there are six such characteristics that Paul delineates for us in the words that he used. I'll just name them quickly. First of all, prayer is to be offered in everything. In other words, in every circumstance. No matter how serious or casual, no matter how tragic or trivial, in all times. I mean, the contrast is striking. In nothing be anxious, but in everything be prayerful. Amen? Uh, Secondly, there's, there's the word prayer itself. This is the broad term, a broad term that encompasses all kinds of prayer. It could be adoration, praise, petition, thanksgiving, confession, intercession. Uh, it, 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 it involves supplication. And that word is more narrow and specific in its focus. Here Paul has in mind the reality of need and want. And this word, supplication, emphasizes our dependence upon God for everything. And it is the reality, it is the reality of our dependence on God that makes prayer, meaningful prayer of the sort that that Paul is writing about here, so difficult for some people. Particularly men. I mean, men today believe that the way to success and respect in today's world is by cultivating an image of self-sufficiency and independence, right? Men typically do not open up and confess their inadequacy or give indication of their great need. This is to admit weakness, and that's a fatal mistake in today's world. That kind of pride is not conducive to the kind of prayer that Paul has in mind here. And then this prayer is to be offered with thanksgiving. So before you ask God for something new, thank him for something old. Thank him for something old. Uh, this, this is a mood or mindset or attitude that is to characterize all prayer. Why does Paul want all our prayers to be bathed in thanksgiving? There there are a few reasons. First of all, it's hard to be bitter in the presence of God when our minds and our mouths are filled with what God has done for us in the past. When you are thankful, you realize that everything you have is of grace and that you deserve nothing but death. Secondly, it is difficult to doubt God and his promise to answer us when you are thanking him for the blessings he has already bestowed. Thirdly, thanksgiving is the fuel for future requests. In other words, if your mind is first filled with remembrance of what God has graciously done in the past, it will empower and expand your requests for what you need now and tomorrow. Fourthly, when you recall God's goodness and mercy in the past, it's hard to remain burdened in the present. Thanksgiving has a way of alleviating the pressure of the present by reminding us of God's power at work on our behalf in the past. Fifthly, by constantly keeping fresh in our minds all that we have to be thankful for, we will be less inclined to disregard others who are less well-off. And sixthly, as strange as this may sound, we also need to thank God for saying no. We need to thank God for saying no. We, we all know if God were to grant us the request we, we, we uh, make of him, uh, there are some occasions uh, in which that would bring us harm that we are unable to see in the, in the present. So he says no. 
On some occasions, God will say no to a request in the present because he has something far better in store for us in the future. I mean, there are multiple multitude of reasons why God might say no, and when he does, we need to thank him for that. Amen? And I'll add a seventh aspect of thanksgiving and prayer here. We need to thank God for the circumstance itself about which we are praying, for the trial, the difficulty, the suffering, whatever it may be. We thank God for whatever he brings into our life, knowing that he has sovereignly ordained whatever has come to pass for our good and his glory, so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ himself in our character and our conduct. And just a couple more, there are requests. Here Paul has in view the actual content of our prayers, the precise details. It's Paul's way of reminding us not to hide behind generalities, vague religious platitudes, be specific, be concrete. You know, it's really amazing when you think of it, that prayer on the surface, it seems so impertinent, doesn't it? That fallen, hell-deserving, finite creature, creature should ask the infinitely glorious creator for anything, right? And what makes it seem even more impertinent is the expectation we have that God might actually do or provide what we ask. But he will, and he does, Amen. And we're told to make our requests known. And we make them known, finally, the sixth characteristic of prayer, to God. Or more literally, in the presence of God. Face to face with him, as it were. I mean, consider how this works in our relationship with other people. Oftentimes, you know, we we, we must know a person really well before the conversation flows freely and we open up and let them in on the struggles and needs of life. You know, we can talk about the weather, we can talk about sports, we can talk about the collapse of the Mets. But until we know that person and are confident of their love for us, it really goes, rarely goes deeper than that. I mean, there are certain things I might share with my closest circle of Christian brothers that maybe I might not share with everyone on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, Okay. There are things I would talk about with my wife that even my closest friends might never hear. And then there are a lot of things that God and I talk about to which no one else on earth may have access. So I would suggest that if your prayer life is dull and sporadic at best, it may be that you're talking to a stranger. It may be that you're talking to a stranger. Now, having uh, unpacked the, the characteristics of prayer, Paul now describes its consequences, the result of turning to prayer in the midst of anxiety. And Paul describes it in one gloriously beautiful and reassuring phrase, the peace of God guarding our hearts and minds in a way that no human mind can fully comprehend. This phrase, the peace of God, occurs only here in Philippians chapter 4 in all the New Testament. He's not talking about peace with God. That is presupposed. As I said before, if you aren't at peace with God, you can't experience the peace of God. If the enmity between you and God has not been removed by faith in the blood of Christ's cross, you can't experience the sort of peace that Paul has in mind here in Philippians chapter 4. That feeling in your heart of ease and contentment and all's well in the world is a lie if you aren't at peace with God. If you haven't invested your trust in Christ as your treasure and your only hope for forgiveness of sin, what's going on in your mind and heart is a psychological delusion, a deceptive trick that ultimately leads you straight into eternal death. 
But for those who have been reconciled to God through faith in the blood of Christ shed for them on the cross, there is God's very peace that now enters their hearts and rules and reigns and triumphs over all anxiety. And understand this. Paul isn't talking so much about the peace that God gives as he is about the peace that exists in God himself. It is God's peace, not so much because he gives it, although he does, but because he, he experiences it. This is the tranquility and joy and calm and serenity that characterizes the being of God himself. And yes, he does give it. He does impart it. And he does infuse it in us when we pray to him. Now think of what Paul is saying. When we fervently and honestly and passionately pour out our requests to God, Something of the very nature of God himself, his inner peace, what he himself as God experiences comes into us and takes up residence and governs our hearts and overcomes and replaces our anxious thoughts and enables us to experience the depths of that spiritual serenity that God himself feels and enjoys. This is what Isaiah spoke of when he said of God in Isaiah 26 verses 3 and 4. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Something else is said about this peace of God that becomes ours when we pray. It far surpasses and outstrips and transcends all human comprehension. The human mind can't fully grasp it. The human hand can't reproduce it in a factory or a laboratory. The human eye can't begin to envision what it looks like. You know, as much as we pride ourselves on our scientific and technological achievements, this piece is something that will never be reduced to merely human terms or explained by even the greatest and most brilliant minds. This piece isn't some cheap psychological trick to get you past a few problems in life. No diagnostic manual or self-help book can reproduce it. It is God-produced and God-given. And look at what this piece does. This peace does something. It is not impotent or quiet or weak or inactive. It guards your hearts and minds. And this would have been an especially vivid image for Paul as he wrote these words. For he, uh, as he wrote these words, for he did so as he sat in chains in a Roman prison. Uh, the city of Philippi was home to a Roman garrison, and the sight of soldiers keeping careful watch over the area would have been a common phenomenon for these Christians. So God's peace, like a garrison of soldiers, will stand guard over your hearts and minds. In the midst of God's peace, you are secure from worry and fear as any well-armed fortress. Now, what precisely does this peace guard as a garrison of soldiers? Well, not our bodies, because we can still fall sick or suffer damage from... a disaster or be cast into prison for our faith and even martyred. Not our possessions, because the enemies of the church can still steal and confiscate our property. Not our bank accounts, because the economy can still collapse. Not our reputation, because we are still objects of slander and gossip and abuse. Rather, this peace guards our hearts and minds, which is Paul's way of referring to the core of our spiritual life. Our values, our passions, our thoughts, that place of deep intimacy with Christ himself. Spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, God will never permit an assault on his children to be successful. But don't be misled into thinking that this is a promise or a guarantee for just anyone. 
This is not a universal promise that just anyone can lay hold of. This is a protection which comes from the peace of God that is found only in Jesus Christ. If you don't know Christ, if he isn't your treasure, if your faith isn't grounded and fixed in him alone, this passage promises you nothing. Finally, observe what Paul doesn't say about prayer. He doesn't say that all our requests will be answered in precisely the way we ask them. He doesn't say that the problems and perplexities and pain that may have caused the anxiety in the first place will suddenly and forever disappear. What he does say is that a loving Heavenly Father will guard your heart and mind in Jesus Christ as you face and endure and patiently persevere in the midst of whatever this world throws in your direction. Amen? Uh, We'll stop there. I, I did have more to say about the sovereignty of God. Uh, but, but that can be for another time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you uh, for the gift of your great peace, for the, for the fruit of peace that is produced in our lives as we walk by your Spirit in humble dependence upon his power and in obedience to the word that he inspired. And I pray that each and every one of us tonight uh, would, would understand uh, the need to be anxious for nothing and to know that that anxiety will give way to peace if we will pray in the way that that, that, uh, Paul has taught us tonight. Uh, We confess our anxiety as sin. Help us uh, to walk more faithfully by your Spirit. Help us that in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we will make our requests known to you and that we might experience your peace guarding our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.